Good afternoon. It is just a great honor for me to join you. Actually, I've been looking forward to this for, uh, well, for about three years since Ian and I first began to plan this, and then it was kind of detonated because of the pandemic. <clears throat> but uh, Ian has encouraged me at the beginning here to just kind of give you a brief update. He mentioned that I have the privilege of, of, of leading Great Commission Collective and uh, yeah, uh, but so this, if, if you're not familiar with Great Commission Collective, it's just this wonderful family of churches that exists for two reasons, to plant churches and to strengthen leaders. And I, I'm really encouraged by, uh, I don't assume that every season's going to be this kind of wonderfully fruitful season, but we are in a fruitful season where we're having the opportunity to plant 14 churches right now. There's 15 other church planters that are already be, being supported, and that's just in North America. You know, if we begin talking internationally, there's actually a lot more going on. There's, uh, there's six different international networks that exist now serving within different countries, multiple countries, to be able to plant churches in those countries. And just over the next uh, six to nine months, there's three more networks that are going to be formed as well. And so <clears throat> there's good things going on, but what, what, what Ian would never say to you is that part of the reason that Great Commission Collective is thriving right now is due in part, humanly speaking, to two strong boards of leaders, one of them in the United States and the other one here in Canada. And Ian serves on the board in Canada. And I recognize that part of the reason he is able to do that is because there is a church that supports him in doing that. There are elders that encourage him to do that. There are people in this room that are praying for him as he does that. And it's, it's making a difference. And so if I achieved nothing else this afternoon, I wanted to stand in front of you and look you in the eye and just say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for not being a church that's just about yourself. Thank you for being a church that sees up beyond to the harvest and sees ways that you can make a meaningful difference by, by sowing into the harvest in very strategic ways. Now, you know, when, when people ask me, like, what excites me about Great Commission Collective, one of the first things I say is, oh, that's easy. It's the, it's the Canadian churches. It's, it's what God is doing up in Canada. And, uh, and it thrills me to be able to say that because the Canadian churches are just populated by these leaders like Ian, a, a man who I, I, I deeply respect and have such a great affection for. And yet there's just so, so many wonderful things going on. And, and it's happening because there's congregations like you that are serving and supporting and are creating models that can be exported and can be of help to people all over the world. So thank you. You know, we're not, we're not a big group, and we don't regard ourselves as exceptionally talented, but we are trying to be faithful, and I'm just so grateful we get to be, try to be faithful in partnership with you. So thank you. Open up your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 4, because now we get to 
turn to the Word of God, far more important than any network, is the Word of God. <clears throat> if you're here as a guest today, I can certainly relate to that. This is my first time as well, so we share that experience together. Although I'm delighted that my wife Kim gets to join me, and not always when I travel is she able to come, but she is here today as well, and it's lovely to have her with me. The title of this afternoon's message is The Quest for Contentment. And I'd like to read just a few verses in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. I'm going to read for, through verse 13, and then, and then we'll pray together. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray today that this passage would come alive by the power of your Spirit and that you would make applications in the reality of where each of us live in a way that, that, that facets of these verses would live on through the week and would transform not only our thinking but our passion for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin with a question. How do you respond when you face some incomplete goal or some unfulfilled dream? You know, maybe you're here today and, and, and you had a certain vision for your life. You had a certain vision for what the path of your life was going to look like. But if you're honest with yourself, you realize you haven't even begun to start down that path. You can't even find that path. Or, or, or maybe you're on the path, but the journey is so much slower than you ever thought it would be. You know, I had to face that for a, a lengthy season in the area of, of writing. Writing is something that I always aspire to, but it didn't come in the way I expected, nor did it come in the timetable I predicted. In fact, for a long stretch, well over 15 years, it didn't come at all. So it was one of those areas within my life where I had this dream, the dream was strong, but it always existed just out of reach. That writing felt like this, you know, like this kind of, elephant burial ground for my dreams. It was the place that my dreams went to die. Do you have any areas like that? Some barren desire, some incomplete goal, some unfulfilled dream, and maybe it, maybe it kind of hovers over you like a dark cloud. In fact, maybe it settles on you in the form of a statement, a statement that, that stalks you and haunts you and taunts you and paralyzes you at time with this kind of, it whispers this thought into your mind. 
by now, I should have been, and, and you're constantly filling in the blank. By now, I should have been married. By now, I should have been financially stable. By now, I should have been more healthy or had a better job or had kids or had a life that was dramatically different than the one I appear to be living. It's the voice of unsatisfied desire. And we may not be aware of it, but often it's the voice of discontent. Discontentment happens when our ambitions are frustrated. In other words, we aspire to something, but God does not deliver it, so we stew in self-pity and wonder why God is so sloppy in the way that he runs our life. We have not what we desire. I want to be really clear in saying that to desire health, to desire leadership or stability, although the things that I mentioned earlier is not wrong, in fact, it can be a sign of a very good and a very godly dream that you might have. But, but the real issue is how we live and how we feel and how we relate to God and each other when we don't get what we want when we want it. Because when our desires become demands, we become discontent. We have not what we desire. Now, there are a number of things I want to talk about today, but I want to telegraph for, to you right from the start like where we're going. I want to give you right up front what I believe is the key to contentment because it's summed up in the words of one of my favorite Puritan authors, Thomas Watson, who once said, quote, if you have not what you desire, you have more than you deserve. If you have not what you desire, you have more than you deserve. So we're going to discover together that that's actually the destination of our passage. But for the moment, let's just move that to the side and return to Paul and the context and a little line-on-line -line exposition of what's going on here in Philippians chapter 4. <clears throat> so, you've been in Philippians or you've been in the epistles, so once again we meet Paul. And by the way, when Paul is writing this, he's not kind of perched atop a customized writing desk, but, uh, you know, there's not a cushioned high back chair that he's sitting on and kind of sitting down and reflecting on these thoughts. Paul's in prison. In fact, some commentators suggest that he was chained to a Roman guard. And he's writing to the Philippians. Now, the Philippians are a good church. They're, they're, they're a good church, good folk, but like most churches where people are together, there are problems, and among the Philippians, there are problems. And their problems seem to be centered predominantly around a disunity and a conflict that they seem to have, and Paul wants to help them. If you've ever been in a situation where someone you love, there's problems breaking out with somebody that you love, and you're unable to get to them, then you can identify with where Paul was when he was writing this, because he loved the Philippians. He wanted to get to them, but he was chained. He was trapped. He couldn't move. So he writes these first three chapters, and in chapter four, he begins to address specifically their financial support. 
He, he thanks God for their financial support, but he says he doesn't really need it because Paul had learned to live having, again, not what he desired. In fact, let's just listen to him and the way he describes it in verse 11. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Now, let me just stop there and say he's certainly talking here of financial need, but it also clearly goes beyond financial need because he goes on to say, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So let's just pause for a second and roll this over in our mind. Paul's in prison and content. Paul's in prison and restrained, but content. Paul's in prison and restrained, but not in need. How does that work? Well, Paul, Paul answers that question. He says, it's because I've unlocked a secret, a mystery. Jeremiah Burroughs calls it the rare jewel of Christian contentment. And Paul doesn't leave us speculating on what that means or how you actually color in the picture there. He basically describes it. He says, okay, so this is how it works for me. He says, in whatever situation I am, I've learned to be content. I can abound. I can be brought low. I can face plenty and hunger, abundance and need, without being plagued by that statement that stalks people of by now I should have been something more than I am or someplace different than where God has called me to be. See, there is a sense where we're, you know, we're now encountering Paul and it's this vulnerable moment of his life. But he's talking to us about how he was able to be satisfied and at peace with God and at peace with God's will in all situations. In fact, Paul was able, <clears throat> Paul was able to be satisfied and at peace with God's will in all situations without abandoning his dreams. And I say it that way because, you know, one of the ways that we try to punish God for the poor decisions we feel he makes about our life is we give up our motivation for him. We give up our ambitions. We give up our aspirations. We, we withdraw our ambitions from God. We say, okay, God, oh, I get it. I understand how this works. You're sovereign. You're supposed to be good, but you explain nothing to me. And so, I'm not going to just step out of this whole Christianity thing. I've been involved in it too long. I'm committed to that. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk off the field, go over to the sidelines, and have a seat. And that's my statement of protest to your unexplained, inexplicable sovereignty. And yet, here we find Paul. And there is a sense where his... His sense of significance, his, his, his ability to move forward was not attached to whether his situation was changing. His sense of significance was not situational at all. It wasn't t attached to his status. <clears throat> in other words, Paul's peace did not rest in anything outside of his relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, I read this quote once. It was by, um, it was in a biography by, about Jonathan Edwards. And, and, and the, the biography just made this, 
<clears throat> this passing statement he said of Jonathan Edwards, he said, his happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. And I thought, wow, you know, I don't think that could be said of me. Well, what about you? Is, is your happiness outside of the reach of your boss? Actually, let's take it out of the category of enemies and put it in, into close family. Is your happiness outside of the reach of your adult children? Is your happiness outside of the reach of, of, of people around you that you love that aren't responding in the way you expect it? Or let's, you know, let, let's make it larger. Is your happiness outside of the reach of the elected officials within your community? This is all just another way to ask the question, am I content? Now, I get it. We, you know, we read Paul, and this just seems like an untouchable thing for us. You know, Paul drops these statements, and, and it's so tempting to say, well, yeah, I mean, this is, of course, that's Paul. I mean, that dude's been to the third heaven. Who knows what you get if you, you go there? Maybe the contentment was like the consolation prize when you leave the third heaven. <clears throat> but that's not how Paul presents this. He says, I have learned. I have learned this secret. See, this one's not included with conversion. This isn't part of the conversion package when, you're, when you come to Christ. <laughs> I wish it was, don't you? You like that, you know, God could like send us an email and we just click and download it or upload or whatever that is. It's an attachment and then we get it and we're content. No, no, it doesn't work that way. This is learned. This is acquired. This is developed. And here's the good news. It was available to Paul and it's available to us as well. And maybe you're thinking, well, okay, how how does that work? I want that. That's why, well, well, let's hear how it worked for Paul. So let's move from verse 11 to verse 12 because he kind of fills in the picture a little bit more. He says in verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So Paul kind of Paul kind of specifies this field of experience this this body of experience where contentment engages our desires or a lack of contentment engages our desires and and he starts down on one side of the field with these experiences that he describes as abounding and plenty and abundance He's talking about the good times. And, and we have these in life, don't we? You, you know, <clears throat> you got the raise, or God answered the prayer that you've been praying all this time, or, or you were promoted and you never expected that, or selected for a role and it's, it, it's all glorious. In other words, your, your dreams are coming alive and life is getting good and your ambitions are fat and happy. To adapt Watson's quote, you, you have what you desire. But here's the thing. Don't miss what Paul is saying because this is so fascinating. Paul says, yeah, I know how to do that. I know how to abound. I know how to do plenty. 
Now, you know, I don't know if your mind works like mine at all, but the instinct is to think, well, uh, yeah, Paul, like, don't we all? Lord, do you doubt that I, that thy servant, Dave, knows how to do planning? Lord, smite me with a Lexus, and I will show thee, I will show thee that I can do plenty. And, and, and have you ever noticed that our, our dreams are always dreams of abounding and abundance? You know, it's, it's just rare to dream low. Johnny wants to be homeless. Go, Johnny, go. You know, we're never saying those things. Because to dream is to aspire to a better future. But here's the thing that we're learning from Paul, is that our happiness can't be linked to a satisfied dream. Our happiness can't be linked to a satisfied dream. Our happiness can't be linked to a vision of the future of constant ascent or constant prosperity. Because always abounding just isn't reality. But also there's a whole other side to this as well, and that is that sometimes our greatest temptations can come not through trials and suffering and affliction, but also through plenty and times of praise. You know, it's a fascinating little proverb in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 21, where, where it says, the crucible is for silver, the furnace for gold, and, and a man is tested by his praise. Boy, you don't expect it to land there. You, th- you, you think you're reading the proverb and you think a man is going to be tested by his affliction. A man is going to be tested by his trials. The man, a man is tested by his praise. Think of the imagery that's going on there. Crucible, furnace. The crucibles and furnaces, they, they both test things by heating things. So what's being said in this proverb is that praise heats the soul. Praise tests the soul. Praise reveals the heart in a way that maybe even affliction does not. You know, the book of Esther, there's, there's Haman, you know. Haman is second in command in the entire kingdom and everyone has to bow and pay homage to Haman and everyone does bow and pay homage to Haman except for one guy whose name was Mordecai. And Esther goes on to describe how Haman lives the rest of his life pretty much satisfied because almost everyone in the kingdom paid homage to him, right? Isn't that how it goes? No, no. Haman launched a campaign to exterminate all of the Jews. Why? Because one man wouldn't praise him. The praise of most was not enough. The praise of almost everyone was not enough. He needed to have the praise of all. He was only satisfied by the praise of all. His heart was tested. His heart was revealed. Charles Spurgeon once said, the Christian more often disgraces his profession in prosperity than when he is being abased. And here's the thing. See, Paul got that. Paul discerned 
the temptation of abundance and plenty and abounding. And so he treated plenty and hunger just the same. He treated them as places where he could potentially seek his satisfaction outside of Jesus Christ. And so that's the one set of experiences he talks about. But then Paul, in this passage, also describes this whole other set. It's almost like down on the other end of the field, this other set of experiences where he describes as being brought low, facing hunger, facing need. He's talking about the hard times. He's talking about the by now I should have been times of our life. And I don't know what that might mean for you right now. I mean, maybe you've been, what, passed over for work. Maybe the business tanked. I mean, it just seemed like it was all set up. It seemed like you'd prayed and everything was aligned and boom, it fell apart. Or a friend that you never imagined in a thousand years would act in an unpredictable way or maybe even a spouse acted in an unpredictable way and you feel the effect of not simply disappointment but of betrayal. Or maybe you failed in a way in a place that you never expected that you you would ever fail. And the net effect of all of that is is that you're not only like, like not feeling motivated, but it feels like your dreams are on a respirator gasping for air. I mean, we're, tra- we're still trying to bounce back from this pandemic. You know, you talk about a cumulative experience, a global experience of feeling powerless and impotent and, and ambivalent. Ambitions being starved. We have not what we desire. And here's what Paul says. Yeah, I learned how to do that too. I learned to be brought low. Which means that Paul could be content with unsatisfied dreams, even times of of failure. In fact, for Paul, the lesson of contentment seemed to be so important for God that God would ordain for Paul to be brought low. God would ordain for Paul to have a thorn in his side. God would ordain for Paul to experience long seasons of weakness. And, and, And we all have this. You know, what's yours? Is it, is it an unexpected illness right now or threats of a layoff, uh, maybe a financial hit or wanted to be married but you're still single or, or, or there's this area where you're, <clears throat> you, you've always, you need to become competent in this area. You need to become better in, this stu- in studying this thing and it's just not going the way you expected. Where, where is God revealing your weakness and limitation right now? I'm laughing because I'm remembering this one day I'm, 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 I'm sitting in my family room reading. Uh, Kim is over on the chair. She's reading. Uh, Kim thinks she hears water running in the basement. She looks up and she says, is one of the kids in the basement shower? And, and I listened. I said, no, I don't think so. And, and she said, oh, okay. And I said, oh, okay. And we went back to reading. <clears throat> then about 10 minutes later, I'm sitting there reading, and this, and this random thought like penetrates my mind. I thought, wait a minute. 
we don't have a basement shower. <laughs> and I do hear water running. And I know right now you're thinking, Ian, did you really invite this guy to speak? Is this, is this really the kind of quality of brain that we got? Actually, hang on, because it gets so much worse. <laughs> because I ran downstairs, and I was immediately able to discern that all was not right. And I was able to discern this because there was a hole in the wall, and behind that there was a pipe, and the pipe had a hole in it, and it was shooting water across the basement, and it was splashing across the other wall. Actually, my first thought was, was hey, wow, this is pretty amazing. Look at this. this is, look at that. And then I realized, this is my house, and I need to do something about this. And I, I, I think I missed the what to do when the pipe break and you need to shut down the water real quickly class in high school <laughs> and so I'm running around the basement I'm like flipping light switches off and on and I'm turning knobs and there's and there's nothing I can do to shut this water off so I got this neighbor Ralph <laughs> you know Ralph's one of these guys that just knows how to do everything. Hey, what are you doing this weekend, Ralph? Well, I had a free afternoon, so I put an addition onto the home, you know? He, one of those guys. I really don't like Ralph. <laughs> so I'm standing there in, in three inches of water, and Ralph walks in. Kim, Kim gets on the phone. She says, she says, Ralph, again, it's Dave. It's the basement this time. Come immediately. Ralph walks into the basement. I'm standing there. He locks eyes with me. He walks across the basement. He opens a closet door, keeping eyes locked with me the whole time. He reaches in. He turns some kind of handle in there. The water shuts off. He never stops looking at me. And then he walks out the other side of the basement. Those are low moments. And we all have them. And, and that one's maybe a little bit more comical, but let's be honest, it gets much worse than that. Let me ask you a question. Where is the pipe gushing in your house right now? Is it, is it your marriage? Is it your parenting? Is it, is it the adult kids? Is it the teenagers, you know, and you're in that season? I mean, is it coming out of the pandemic? I mean, the pandemic, you know, it just kind of reshuffled lives, didn't it? It reduced community, it ransacked our rhythms, and in other words, it's laying some low. And here's what Paul says. Paul says, yeah, I, I feel bad about that, but I've learned how to do that. I've learned to be brought low. Again, we have to remember, this guy's writing to us about contentment from prison. This is a guy who was equally satisfied preaching before King Agrippa or when his life and his liberties were stripped down or stopped for some reason and he's bound up in prison. So I guess the question I want to ask you this afternoon is, how do you do when your dreams and your life just don't intersect? You know, when life seems to force you down rather than lift you up. You know, how, how are you doing there? Because we expect life, you know, we expect the journey of, of Christianity to be like we're, like we're walking down a hallway where, where God is just overall making everything clear. And, and, and when it's necessary, he'll inspire a desire in us and then he'll throw the door open. 
And, and yet we find, no, it's not like that at all. Actually, we, 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 there are times where we're walking down and we feel like God's called us to go through a door. In fact, we've, we, we have become convinced that God has called us to enter into this specific room. And then we, we, we because we've prayed about it, we've sought counsel, we've, we've anticipated it for years, we've received training on it. And all of a sudden we try the door and the door is not just shut, but the door is locked. In fact, the door is not just locked, but the door is bolted. And it just won't yield. And we don't know what to do about that because we think God is behind that door for us. We think he's led us and all of life has pointed to being in that room and the door won't yield. And so we stand there and we beat, we beat our hands bloody against the door, unable to reconcile the idea that God may inspire a desire that he does not satisfy. That there are times where God will give dreams and desires, but the intent is not to fulfill the dream. The intent is to do a work in your heart that can be achieved in no other way but then through a denied dream. Through the dependence that it creates upon the Savior. Through the humbling that it creates within the soul. And sometimes we can't conceive of a God that would do that. Because we've, we've written a script in our mind that imagines that God, that that's somehow a flag on the field for God to, God to, to give us desires that he doesn't fully satisfy. But the reality is there is a day coming when those desires will be fully satisfied. It's just not here in this broken world. We have desires because they signal something forward. They telegraph to us that there is a day coming when they will be fulfilled, when we will enjoy the fullness of them. But it's just not here and now all the time. And, <clears throat> you know, just ask Moses. Moses stood on the threshold of the promised land. He spent all that time dragging the people through the wilderness just to get them there. And then God says, actually, you're not going in. Paul ends his life saying, some of the final words that Paul whispers in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, at my first defense, no one stood by me. Everyone deserted me. I mean, Jesus himself is in the garden. He's saying, Lord, let this cup pass. You know, for, for, for many Christians, we get sold on the idea that success is about the satisfaction of our desires in this life, the satisfaction of our dreams in this life. And we feel like God has defrauded us because all of our dreams have not been satisfied or they haven't been satisfied in the way that we expected or some of the most potent dreams that we have have been stopped or denied. And God says, no, no, you, you have to understand I'm so much bigger than that. And that there are some works in your soul that are so significant that they can only be achieved by an unsatisfied dream. By an unsatisfied ambition. In fact, there are some idols that are so embedded in our heart that they can only be dislodged by an unsatisfied dream. So again, let me get back to the question I was asking. How do you do when your dreams and your life just don't intersect when life seems to force you down rather than lift you up? I brought this quote this afternoon. I love this quote. It's by J.I. Packer. 
J.I. Packer once said, the world's idea that everyone from childhood up should be able at all times to succeed in measurable ways and that it is a disgrace not to hangs over the Christian community like a pall of acrid smoke. Can I make an appeal this, this afternoon? Let me just make one appeal. Here's my appeal. Don't buy the world's vision of success. Don't buy a vision of success that says there's no place for trial. There's no place for failure. There's no place for unsatisfied ambition. There's no place for I must decrease, but he must increase. People live their entire life craving worldly success, never realizing that there are times where God may ordain their hunger to save their soul. That God is more committed to our rescue than our earthly success. That God has a completely different definition of success than the one that we bring in each and every season of our life. And here's the thing. Paul got that. Paul understood that. It's how he was able to find peace in prison that the secret of success was not bound up in ascent. It was about learning a secret that links his identity to something else than a worldly vision of success. And that's why this entire line of thought converges into verse 13. It is the secret of contentment unveiled. And this is what Paul says. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul completes the lesson. Paul wants us to understand the secret and the source of his contentment. And this is it. You ready? This is what he says. It is him who strengthens me. And of course, him who strengthens Paul is the same him who strengthens us. He's talking about Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying here is that contentment is learned by becoming, becoming experts at examining and enjoying what it really means to be in Jesus Christ. That our union with Christ carries the power of God, the strength to see God at work even when we're in prison, even when we feel like we're in prison, even when we feel like we're trapped, even when we feel like we're enchained. The strength to do all things. The strength to believe that God is treating us. Even though life isn't working out the way we expected, God is treating us according to his loving kindness and his goodness. Which returns us to the Watson quote. If we have not what we desire, we have more than we deserve. Because you know what? At the heart of discontent is this conviction. I mean, you strip discontent down to its essence and there is a heart that is, make, that is making this statement. I'm not getting what I deserve here. I don't have what I do. In this situation, in this relationship, in this job, in this season, I'm not getting what I deserved. And here, here's, what Paul, here's what Paul discovered, and here's what we must discover as well. And that is that the gospel answers that statement with this cheery news. 
You're absolutely right. You are not getting what you deserve, and you can thank God for that. See, the heart of discontent is this subtle comparison that produces the idea that somehow we deserve better than we are receiving. But what the gospel does is the gospel turns that complaint on its head and reminds us that regardless of our state, be it humble or exalted, plenty or hunger, abundance or need, we live infinitely above what we truly deserve. Most people think that discontentment could be solved by just like maybe jumping into the car and driving to a different part of the city and observing people that might be in less favorable circumstances than the ones in which we live or going to another country or whatever it may be. As if the key to contentment is to compare ourselves to those in less favorable circumstances. And that can be helpful, but that's not the point. The point is that we don't ultimately find contentment by comparing ourselves to others who are worse off. We find contentment by comparing what we have to what our sins deserved. We find contentment by remembering the gospel. See, it's the gospel that reminds us of what we truly deserve, that we were spiritually wretched, that we were lost, that we were miserable and broken, and yet God loved us despite those things, and even despite his love, we were opposing him. We were in opposition. We were, we were enmity with him, and moreover, we clung prideful to that place and utterly powerless to alter our circumstance. We were incomprehensible committed to our own destruction. But God, who is rich in mercy, came to us in the person of Jesus Christ and wrenched us free from the irrational commitment we had to our own destruction. And by dying in our place, he gave us reason to live And this hope that we're going to live again. And the power then to do all things through him who strengthens us. And Paul steps forward in Philippians chapter 4 and says, and that's the secret of contentment. And when we have it, we can be at rest in the present and yet still dream about the future. Paul sits in prison content, and yet this is a guy who had great ambition. He was going to take the gospel all the way to Spain. So we too must live at peace in the present while we still burn for more and ask for more and press for more and strive for more and pray for more and, and, and die for more and, and ultimately live for more. So, if you're here this afternoon and you have not what you desire, you're in good company. Take heart. Take comfort. Don't take a break. Because as Watson said, if you have not what you desire, you have more than you deserve. Let's pray. Lord, We are so humbled by remembering what you've accomplished for us. 
and by your ongoing commitment to conform us to your image, even at times at the expense of our dreams. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you that there are ways that you are forming our life and our experiences that we do not understand now, but are shaping us and preparing us for eternity. We pray you would help us to be content in those things right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.